Good morning again. Good to see you and be with you this morning as we come together to hear God's Word from the Gospel according to Luke. So you can take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We're continuing on in in our series in the Gospel according to Luke. And today we enter a new section in Jesus' ministry, verses 51 to 62, where the Lord turns His attention to Jerusalem. And from this point forward in the Gospel account, everything is headed towards the cross. Everything is headed towards the cross from this point forward. So Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62, and please follow along as we read now from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers ahead of Him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. But the people did not receive Him because His face was set toward Jerusalem. And when His disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do You want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But He turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to Him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. To another He said, Follow Me. But He said, Lord, let Me first go and bury My Father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. Father, we do long to see all of Your churches full. We do long, Father, to see all of the people of God gathered together worshiping the risen Lord Jesus. And so we pray, Father, as that old hymn encourages us to sing, we pray that You would send Your victorious Word abroad and You would gather in Your people. Father, we have gathered today as the people of Your Word marked out by the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, defined by baptism in His name, holding fast to His Gospel, cleansed by His blood. And we pray, God, that You would help us this morning to hear Your Word with faith. These are not easy things that Jesus says to us today. And so we pray for grace to hear them. And Father, we pray for hearts that are eager to be taught eager to be corrected, eager to be instructed, God, and hearts that are easy to be encouraged. We pray for Your help. Please keep me from error, Father. Please help us to hold fast to the Scriptures and to the Word of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. Those words were written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who stood firm against the Nazis in the 1940s. Listen again to what he said. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. 
As we hear that statement, our initial thought might be one of skepticism. Come and die? Really? That seems a little extreme. Perhaps Bonhoeffer's perspective was shaped too much by the times in which he lived. He did, in fact, lose his life at the hands of the Nazis. So maybe Brother Dietrich's view of discipleship should be taken with a grain of salt. Maybe he overstated the case. But then we read passages like the one before us today in Luke chapter 9, and we recognize, or at least we should recognize, that Bonhoeffer wasn't saying anything new. He was simply teaching what Jesus taught. According to Jesus, there is a cost to discipleship. That cost may be something difficult that we have to endure, or it may be something worthwhile that we have to pursue, but either way, discipleship comes at a cost. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. That is, He bids him come and count the cost. You see, it's a call that comes from the Lord Jesus Himself. At the same time, friends, at the same time, honesty compels us to admit that this does sound strange to our 21st century ears. For decades now, churches have made it their aim to make discipleship easier. To lower the barriers of entry, so to speak, so that more people will make a decision for Christ and join the church. And while that motive may be commendable, we certainly want to see more people saved by grace through faith. We just sang it. I just prayed it. While that motive may be commendable, the pursuit of that goal has at times dulled our ears to the Scriptures. When we read Jesus, it sounds like a foreign language to us. What do you mean I have to deny myself to be a Christian? I thought believing in God would make my life better. What do you mean if my eye causes me to sin, I should tear it out? That makes it sound like all of my hang-ups are my fault or something. It's no wonder then that when it comes to Christian discipleship, the one person whom we find the most challenging is Jesus. It's Jesus. His teaching on discipleship is sadly much different than how we're often taught to think. And friends, that's why we need to hear the Word of God. It's why we need to hear the Word of God. People sometimes ask me, why do you put so much stock in the Bible? Reading the Bible, praying the Bible, preaching the Bible. There are other ways to do ministry, you know. Why do you put so much stock in the Bible? Friends, this is the reason why. It's because we always stand in need of transformation. We always stand in need of correction. And if we just picked what we wanted to hear each and every Lord's Day, do you know what we would never hear? That passage I just read. We would never pick that one. It's why we need the Word of God. It's why we need passages like the one here in Luke chapter 9. And make no mistake, Jesus challenges us in this text. I read, the, I read the sermon text last night during family devotions at my home, and my oldest son said, Dad, what does Jesus mean? That's the right question, son. What does he mean? It's challenging. Jesus challenges much of what passes for discipleship in the contemporary church, and that's precisely why we need to listen to him, friends. It's precisely why we need His Word. Here we find the Lord Jesus correcting our perspective and calling us once again to take up the cross and bear the cost 
of following Him on the road of discipleship. So as we look at the text, you should note that verse 51, you see it there in your Bibles, verse 51 marks a new section in Luke's Gospel. Jesus sets His face to go to Jerusalem where the cross awaits Him. Everything now is running downhill to Calvary. And yet, notice how verse 51 begins. Look at the very first line. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up. What does that mean, to be taken up? Well, it's a reference to Jesus' resurrection and His ascension. That's where the cross will lead the Lord Jesus. Not merely to suffering and death, but ultimately to life and victory in the salvation of God's people. So, So catch the theme that is laid out as we start the road to Jerusalem. Notice the theme here. Yes, things are headed to the cross where Jesus will die. And yet, amazingly, that cross is the pathway to Jesus' triumph. That cross where He lays down His life is the means of securing life for all who will believe in His name. That's the theme. And that theme, friends, frames this entire passage. Jesus calls us to bear the cost of discipleship. And one of the things that we need to learn in the process is that while the cost is high, the cost is high, let the dead bury their own dead, While the cost is high, it leads to life in the end. It's worth it, in other words. It leads to life. Following Jesus demands your life, but in the end, it leads to life as well. So let's learn from the Lord what we can expect on the road of discipleship. This passage gives us three costs that we should expect to encounter as we follow the Lord Jesus by faith. Some are difficult things that we have to endure, while the last one is a worthwhile calling that we need to pursue. Three costs that you can expect to encounter. The first comes in verses 51 to 56. It's the cost of worldly rejection. The cost of worldly rejection. We just noted that Jesus turns for Jerusalem in verse 51. But to get from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, the shortest route was to go through Samaria, which is where Jesus goes, verse 52. Now, you may know that Jews and Samaritans didn't always get along. And the conflict was so intense that most Jews would travel around Samaria rather than go through Samaria in order to get to Jerusalem. But that's not what Jesus does. That fact alone is is pretty striking. Jesus is focused on taking the good news to all kinds of people. And so He sends messengers ahead of Him, verse 52, to get things ready for His visit to Samaria. But the Samaritans, at least in this village, don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. Verse 53, they reject Jesus. And by extension, they reject His message. They don't want to hear the good news of the kingdom of God. But catch the reason for their rejection at the end of verse 53. Because His face was set toward Jerusalem. One of the things that Jews and Samaritans argued about was the proper place to worship. You may remember that in John chapter 4 with Jesus and the woman at the well. The Jews believed you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. The Samaritans believed you're supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And they would argue about that. 
But Luke's description here in verse 53 is very revealing. And it goes deeper than that religious controversy. Notice the phrase that Luke uses. Jesus' face was set towards Jerusalem. Luke actually says it twice. Verse 51 and verse 53. His face was set. What's the point? Well, the point is that Jesus will not be deterred from the cross. He will not be deterred from the cross. He's not going to get drawn into religious squabbles, in other words. Perhaps the Samaritans wanted Him to pick a side in their argument about where to worship. But Jesus isn't coming to settle arguments. He's not interested in religious squabbles. No, Jesus is dead set on going to Jerusalem in order to do the Father's will. And Jesus will not be deterred from His mission. His face is set towards the cross because the cross is the reason why He has come. And therefore, the Samaritans reject Him. They reject Him because He won't be deterred. Friends, this is a small but important reminder. In order to come to Jesus, you have to come to Him on His terms, not yours. You don't get to pick the way that you receive Him. And you don't get to pick the kind of Savior that He is. This is the part of the cost of discipleship. It means laying down your life, laying down your expectations, and coming to Jesus on His terms. The Gospel is not God's promise to fit Jesus into your religious framework. Jesus has His mission from the Father, and that mission is to shed His blood for the salvation of His people. So if you want to follow Him, if you want to be a Christian, then you have to follow Jesus on His terms. Which means embracing Him by faith as the Savior who suffered for you in your place, doing what you could not and would not do, achieving the salvation that you could never earn, and embracing that as your own by faith. That's part of the picture in verse 53. This particular village rejects Jesus because they want a Savior who fits their expectations. Not one who's going to suffer and bear a cross. Of course, that's a tragic decision, isn't it? I mean, faced with the author of life, these Samaritans foolishly turn Him away. Considering who Jesus is, the Son of God and the Messiah, this is a reason for divine judgment. In fact, that's exactly what James and John decide. They jump straight to judgment. Verse 54, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do You want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? So James and John are struggling here. They cannot fathom how Samaritans of all people can get away with mistreating and rejecting Jesus. So they ask, do you want us to handle this, Jesus? We can handle this. We can call down some fire from heaven. Just say the word. We're ready. You see, they're eager to inflict judgment. They're eager to give these Samaritans what they deserve. Now, before we jump on the disciples at this point. Remember back to verse 5 at the start of chapter 9 when Jesus sent out the twelve and He told them, if a town rejects you, shake the dust off of your feet and, and go on. You remember that? What was the shaking the dust off your feet meant to symbolize? Well, it symbolized God's judgment. It symbolized that the judgment of God rested on that town. So James and John probably have that in mind 
when they ask Jesus about nuking this village. I mean, rejecting Jesus does invite the judgment of God. That's why we shook the dust off our feet, right? But that's also where James and John get it wrong. There's a difference between shaking the dust off your feet, which is a warning of judgment, and calling down fire from heaven, which is an outpouring of judgment. There's a difference. And that's what James and John miss. And that's why Jesus rebukes them. Verse 55. It's the same word that it's used for Jesus rebuking the storm. Or Jesus rebuking unclean spirits. He rebukes James and John. Why? Because He wants them to understand that now is not the time for judgment. Now is not the time for judgment. That day is coming, but it's not today, Jesus says. Today is the day for preaching the Gospel. Today is the day for declaring God's kindness so that sinners would be led to repentance. In fact, notice what Jesus does. Verse 56. It's so small you might miss it, but we ought not to. He just goes on to the next village. He just keeps going. Now, it's not that Jesus takes rejection lightly. It's not that Jesus minimizes the judgment of God. Far from it. No one is clearer on the danger of unbelief than Jesus. No one in the Bible preached more about hell than Jesus. But also understand that Jesus recognizes today is not the day for that final judgment to come. Today's the day for preaching the Gospel, Jesus says. In that sense, Jesus is teaching His disciples, both with His words and with His example, to do two things. Expect rejection, and then keep going with the mission. Expect rejection, and then keep going. People will refuse to hear the Gospel. The world will reject you. So what do you do then? You look for the next person, the next opportunity, and you make Christ known. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the costs of discipleship. People will reject the Gospel of Christ. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. People will reject the Gospel of Christ. And in response, we have to leave their rejection in God's hands and remain focused on the task before us. Just to preach the good news. Listen to me. As the culture's rejection of the Gospel intensifies, this is a reminder that we need and, and here's why. It's very, very easy to drift into the James and John mindset where the desire for vindication and a right belief in God's judgment can actually obscure our task. It's very easy to get in that James and John mindset. We can get so worked up about how despicable the world is and how deeply our culture deserves the judgment of God that we end up losing sight of the Gospel. And losing sight of the mission. So let's remember, friends, that we are not called to be the instruments of God's judgment. That's God's job, not ours. We are called to proclaim the good news of Christ that saves sinners from the judgment that is surely to come. That's our task. And so I'll just put it very plainly to you. Put it very plainly. It is not Christ-like to burst out in anger against those who reject the Gospel and hate God. It is not Christ-like to explode in anger at such people. It is Christ-like to follow the Apostle Paul's example that we read in Philippians chapter 3 and to weep with tears over those who walk as enemies 
of the cross of Christ. It's very easy to be like James and John. It's hard to be like Jesus. So I'm just going to ask you, when the world rejects the gospel, when you hear the next ridiculous thing that our increasingly secular culture says is good and right, is your first instinct to get mad? Or is your first instinct to weep? Friends, it's not Christ-like to say, do you want me to call down the fire, God? you want me to call down the fire from heaven? It is Christ-like to get on your knees and weep for a broken world and for people who are so blind they would turn away the author of life and continue to drink from wells that do not satisfy their souls. Friends, this is one of the costs that we have to endure in following Jesus. The world will reject us. Just as the world rejected Jesus, we're not going to be a better evangelist than Jesus. And if they rejected Jesus, then they're going to reject you and me. And still, what do we do? We go to the next village, the next situation, the next person, and we proclaim the good news of Christ. That's the first cost of discipleship. It's the cost of worldly rejection. Jesus gives us a second cost, verses 57 and 58. It's the cost of earthly hardship. Somebody's thinking, this is a chipper sermon. (laughs) Worldly rejection, the cost of earthly hardship. Beginning in verse 57, Jesus has three brief conversations with potential disciples. You can see it there. They're each two verses long. Three brief conversations. Luke doesn't tell us how any of the conversations went, and that's significant. It puts you in the position of responding. Will you bear the cost that Jesus describes? In the first conversation, Jesus is approached by a man who professes his readiness to follow the Lord no matter what. Look at verse 57. Someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now that sounds like a high level of commitment, doesn't it? This guy's ready to go. Just say the word, Jesus. He sounds like a disciple who is prepared to bear the cost. But words are easier than actions, and professing commitment is different than displaying commitment. Notice Jesus' response, verse 58. He presses the man to see the reality of life on the road of discipleship. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. That's a pretty alarming statement. The wild animals, Jesus says, are better off than me. Jesus doesn't even have a place to lay his His head. The world is not His home, in other words. He enjoys little comfort, He receives little honor, and He often finds little reception. In fact, think about what he just endured back in Samaria, verse 52. It's an illustration right there in the passage. The messengers went ahead of Jesus, verse 52, in part to prepare accommodations for him so that he could carry out his ministry. But there was no welcome given to him. Remember? That's the tenor of Jesus' whole life from start to finish. He's born in a borrowed stable, and he's got no place to lay his head, and then he dies on a cross. He's a stranger in this world, in other words. And that means the man in verse 57 should expect the same thing. He should expect the same thing. He should expect earthly hardship as he follows Jesus. Now, I want to be clear at this point. To follow Jesus means first and foremost that you trust His life, death, and resurrection to save you from your sins. 
That's foundational because that's the Gospel. Christ died to redeem us from the curse of the law so that the cost of our salvation is paid fully in Christ. And at the same time, to follow Jesus means that you walk in His footsteps, enduring the same kind of hardship that He endured. Jesus paid fully the cost of your salvation, and He now calls you to endure the cost of discipleship, of identifying with Him in the world. That's what's going on here in Luke 9. To follow the Lord means we endure the cost of earthly hardship, and we do so because we belong to Jesus. Friends, what I, what I want us to see here is that Jesus' point is not so much about your material status, whether or not you are well off, whether you have a little or a lot. Jesus has a lot to say about possessions. He has a lot to say about money. But the primary point in verse 57 and 58 is not about possessions. You don't literally have to be homeless to follow Jesus. Rather, Jesus' point is much more challenging than that. His concern is that we not be at home in this world. right? That we not be at home in this world. As Christians, we should expect to be out of step with the world. We should expect it. And therefore, we should expect to endure hardship as we seek to follow Jesus. There are some levels of comfort the world offers that you and I will not be able to experience if we're faithful to the Lord. There are certain kinds of prestige, certain kinds of acceptance that we will not receive in this life. If you follow Jesus and stand firm on what His Word teaches on human sexuality, for example, you will be out of step with this world and real quick. And some of you might be thinking, why do you always bring up human sexuality? Because, friends, it's, it's, the, it's the pressure point for the church in our day. It's the pressure point for the church in our day. If you're going to stand firm on God's Word and follow Jesus and what His Word says about these things, you're going to be out of step with the world. If you follow Jesus and insist, as His Word does, that He is the only Savior, that no one will be reconciled to God and brought into the new heavens and the new earth other than those who trust in Jesus consciously with their minds, putting their faith in Him, if you insist that He's the only Savior, you will not be accepted by the world. These things make us out of step. And yet they're essential to being faithful to Jesus. You'll be homeless, so to speak, in the economy of this age. You won't have a place. Like the Lord Himself, we should expect to be sojourners and strangers as we walk through the world. To put it another way, friends, being a Christian is not about, it's not about winning friends and influencing people. Following Jesus is not a recipe for upward social mobility. And we should be wary of ever confusing the two. And we should be honest that we've probably confused the two far more often than what we should have. So are we mindful of this cost, brothers and sisters? Are we seeking every day to mature in God's Word, to grow stronger in the faith, so that we might endure earthly hardship in faithfulness to Jesus? Are you mindful of that cost are you seeking to grow? As Rodrigo prayed, are we, are we striving to mature in the faith? Or have we begun to believe that our lives as Christians ought to be easy and free of difficulty? Have we become too comfortable with the world? 
Friendship with the world is enmity with God, friends. That's in the Bible. It's a verse in the Bible. I read a a book recently by a, a theologian named David Wells, and he gives this definition of worldliness that has been really helpful to me. Worldliness is anything that makes righteousness look strange and sin and wickedness look normal. Worldliness is anything that makes righteousness and holiness look strange and by extension then makes sin and wickedness look normal. That's worldliness. And listen, I'm, I am alarmed at the level of worldliness that still resides in my heart. And I am alarmed at how deeply I want what the world has to offer. Maybe you feel the same way. If so, then let's listen to the Lord Jesus here in verse 58. Let's receive His correction and let's pray for the grace to repent of where we've been too comfortable and then to live as the sojourners and strangers that we are. To follow Christ is to endure earthly hardship and we see that in the life of the Lord Jesus Himself. That's the second cost. The third and final cost comes in the last two conversations, verses 59 to 62. The focus shifts from what we have to endure to what disciples ought to pursue. Cost number three, discipleship comes with the cost of kingdom priorities. Kingdom priorities. This time, Jesus initiates the conversation, verse 59. And he commands a man to follow him. The man is willing, Luke tells us, but first he asks Jesus for some time to bury his father. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? Perhaps the man's father has already died or he's about to die. Whatever the specifics, the man is willing to follow Jesus, but, but not quite yet. Not quite yet. He, tend, he needs to tend to this other responsibility. Jesus' response, however, is stunning. Verse 60, Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Friends, if you find that statement shocking, that's because Jesus intends it to be. Jesus is saying that in the course of life, nothing is as urgent or necessary as devoting oneself to Christ and to His kingdom. Let goods and kindred go, as the hymn says that we sang. That comes from Jesus. Even family obligations that are good and right must be seen in light of Jesus Christ. Now, just for some context, the the funeral process in Jesus' day was, was lengthy and it was pretty involved. So the delay that this man asks for is not like the delay that you and I would ask for where we're probably having the funeral tomorrow and I'll be ready to go on Tuesday. It's, it's probably not like that. It's a lengthy delay. And, and, that, and that's the problem, Jesus says. If the man waits to follow Jesus until after he buries his father, who's to say there won't be another pressing need next? And if I'm going to delay now, then why not delay then? And then I just keep delaying. And over time, what happens is that the man never starts following Jesus by faith. Because there's always another thing. There's always, hold on, let me do this. There's always something more urgent, something more pressing that we have to take care of. Do you see the problem? If the kingdom of God is not first in your priorities, then, it, then it's not a priority. The kingdom of God is one of those absolutizing priorities. It demands 
first. If the kingdom of God is not first, then it will never be a priority. You'll always be pushing the start date back until one day there's no time left to start. The same sense of urgency shows up in the final conversation. Look at verses 61 and 62. Again, a man declares his willingness to follow Jesus, verse 61, but he also needs a delay. He needs to say farewell to his family. It's like the previous situation, isn't it? A little bit. I'm ready, Jesus, but, but first let me take care of this other thing. Again, Jesus emphasizes the immediacy, the urgency of living for the kingdom of God. Verse 62, Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is using two illustrations here. The first one pretty clearly is from the world of farming. I say pretty clearly because that's what I read in one of the commentaries. I'm not a farmer. So this is what I learned in my studying. It's from the world of farming. That if you hooked up a team of oxen and you were going to plow them and you looked back over your shoulder like this, your rows would get crooked. And if your rows get crooked, then you don't make the best use of your field. You could have grown more crops if the rows were straight. So when Jesus says, don't look back like this, He's saying, don't, don't get distracted because it will take you off the course of fruitfulness. That's the first illustration. Don't, don't get distracted because you'll, you'll miss it. The second illustration, though, is, is much more powerful. It comes from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the experience of looking backwards was a picture of divided loyalty that eventually led to unfaithfulness. Divided loyalty that eventually led to unfaithfulness. So think about uh, Israel in the wilderness in Exodus 16. Remember, they've just seen the ten plagues. They've just crossed through the Red Sea. They get one chapter in to their journey to the Promised Land and they've had enough. Right? They start looking back to Egypt and they say, oh, in Egypt we had all the vegetables. We were, we would sit by the meat pots. We had all the bread. All of this. They looked back. Right? They looked back and what happened? They became unfaithful to God. And they, they grumbled against Him. Or even more pressing, think about Genesis 19. Lot's wife. When God tells him to flee from Sodom and Gomorrah, what does Lot's wife do? She looks back. Because that's where her heart is. Her heart is in Sodom. And when she looks back, she falls short of trusting God. Her divided loyalty kept her from faithfulness. You see, that's what Jesus is getting at when He says no one who puts His hand to the plow and looks back. He's saying divided loyalties always lead to unfaithfulness. Listen, friends, Jesus is not opposed to the family. Far, Far from it. He's not opposed to the family. What Jesus warns against is that that sense of attachment to the things of the world that keeps you from the kind of allegiance that the Gospel demands. That sense of attachment in an ultimate way that's not to Christ, but to other things, even good things. In that sense, Jesus is redefining how you think about your life. He's redefining how you think about the world and your relationship to it. And that redefinition is costly. It's costly. Like everything else with the kingdom of God, Jesus' redefinition turns our world upside down. So I love my family the best by loving the Lord Jesus the most. I, I serve my neighbor the best 
by serving the Lord Jesus first and foremost. And I minister to the world most effectively by focusing with all of my strength on the good news of Christ and what God has done in Him and through Him. Divided loyalties lead to unfaithfulness in all of the spheres of your life. But kingdom allegiance leads to faithfulness in every sphere because it keeps things in the proper order. Do you see? It keeps us from being overly attached to good things and missing the most necessary things. If we want to live with the priorities of Jesus' kingdom, then He demands our absolute allegiance. Listen, I don't, know, I don't know any Christian who doesn't want to grow in his commitment to Christ and to His kingdom. I don't know any Christian who would say she doesn't want to be more devoted in her allegiance to the Lord. But here's the truth, friends. When the time comes to make that commitment and endure that cost, I do know, I do know many Christians like the man in verse 59 who say, hold on Jesus, let me do this other thing first. Hold on Jesus, let me attend to this other priority first. And then, when I have time, I'll focus on you and on your kingdom. Friends, I know many Christians like that because I am one. I would prefer discipleship to be easy. I would prefer following Jesus be easy. I often find myself, I'm just going to be honest with you, I often find myself saying, well, when my kids are older, or when the church gets in a more stable place, or when I'm in a better frame of mind, or when I'm not so tired, then I'll really be able to press in to those kingdom priorities. Then I'll go deeper in my allegiance to the Lord. Do you know what happens with that mindset? It just keeps pushing allegiance further and further down the road because there's, there's always another priority, isn't there? There's always something else that's urgent. There's always another good thing that demands my attention. And that means the absolute allegiance that Jesus calls for is left in that category of, well, maybe I'll get to it one day. Then you wake up and there are no more days. What about you, friends? Can you relate to the, well, maybe I'll get to it one day mindset? If so, then let's make today the day that we hear afresh the words of Jesus. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Discipleship is costly. Far more costly than what we recognize But the end of the road is life with Jesus Christ. It's life with the Lord. So where is the Lord calling you to take up the cross today? That's what this passage is about. Where is He calling you to take up the cross today? It could be in a renewed commitment to take in His Word day by day, studying, reading, reading, meditating, obeying what God has said. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you want your spiritual life to be healthier? Then go to the Word of God, friends. Could be a renewed focus on prayer, where you commune with the Heavenly Father and bear the burdens of others in His presence. It could be a deepened commitment to the life of the church body, aiming to regularly encourage fellow believers and be a means of grace in their life. It could be that humble boldness 
to continue pursuing your neighbors and your co-workers, praying that God would open doors for the Gospel and give them faith. Friends, that's just the stuff of the Christian life. Being a Christian is not anything more or anything less than those things. The Word, the prayer, the church, the mission of the Gospel. That's our life. It's not flashy. It doesn't generate headlines. It's costly, but it does lead to life. It leads to life for you and for those whom God has put in your path that you can be a means of grace too. So, where is God calling you to take up the cross today? Where? It's not rhetorical. I'm asking you seriously. Think about it. Write it down. And then pursue God by grace through faith. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer said. And I would add, He bids him come and die so that he might live. So that he might live. Friends, let's take up the cross with the Lord Jesus. Let's take up the cross with Him. Let's rejoice in His blood shed for us. And then let's live each day bearing the cross, knowing that life, life is found in and through Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we desperately need Your help. Even, Lord, as we listen to Your Word, even as I preach these words in this sermon, Lord, I acknowledge in my own heart, I don't, I don't want to live this way. I would, rather, I would rather life be easy. I would rather discipleship not be costly. So we pray for grace, Father, to repent. We pray for grace to repent where we have been far too friendly with the world. We pray, Father, for grace to trust You again afresh and to follow You by faith, trusting in Your Word and believing, Father, that Your Word will certainly conform us more and more to the image of Your Son. In whose name we pray. Amen.